1: Hello, and welcome to Success Profiles Radio. I'm your host, Brian K. Wright, and it's an absolute pleasure to be with you here today. I'm honored that you chose to spend part of your day with me here, and this is going to be a really amazing show. I'll be introducing my guest shortly. I promise this will be a fun and informative hour. This will be terrific. And I do want to take a minute or two to share some things I've been learning and thinking about lately, and I typically do this every single week. So for me, one of the keys to being happy is giving yourself something to look forward to. And this is why high achievers have goals constantly in front of them that they can be excited about for me. One of those goals is the upcoming launch of Success Profiles Magazine, which is an extension of the Success Profiles Radio brand. The front cover and feature story is going to be Kevin Harrington, and I had him on my show earlier this year. It promises to be a really amazing first issue, and I would be honored if you would get on the notification list. All you have to do is go to successprofilesmagazine.com, and you'll be notified when it becomes available, and you'll have the opportunity to subscribe at that time. So let me ask, what big thing are you looking forward to? If you don't have something in front of you to move toward, I would encourage you to find something. I promise you will feel on purpose a lot more often if you have something that you can be passionate about to move toward. Make it a goal in the next day or two to do something that moves you in the direction of your dreams. You will be so very glad you did. And with all of this in mind, I want to introduce my guest. My very special guest this week is Steve Siebold. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Steve trains sales and sales management teams how to increase sales, develop people, and manage change through mental toughness training. He's a former professional tennis player and national coach. His sports clients include Andre Agassi, the Boston Celtics, Florida Marlins, Ohio State University. And in 1997, he began working on the corporate side with Fortune 500 sales teams. He's helped companies like Johnson & Johnson, Transamerica, and many, many more increased sales by hundreds of millions of dollars steve is the author of eight books on mental toughness training and his work has been featured on every major television network in the u.s and canada his interviews and articles have appeared in publications such as wall street journal fortune forbes usa today and many 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 more we'll talk about all of this and so much more on the show today so here we are with my very special guest steve siebold steve how are you today hey great brian how you doing I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor and a privilege to talk to you. One of my favorite books is 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class, and that is one of your books, and I read it very faithfully. So thanks for writing that. Thanks for doing all that research, and we're going to talk about a lot of that today. So uh, the first thing I normally ask people is to tell us a little bit about your background, your backstory. How did you get from where you were to where you are now?
2: Well, I was uh, I was groomed to become a professional tennis player since I was six years old. So I traveled all over the country and some around the world, uh, you know, on that goal for so many years, played college division one tennis and then uh, turned pro for two years. And uh, I couldn't get past really the top 500 in the world. And uh, and I knew some of it was physical and some of it was mental. So I started studying the mental side of performance. And then uh, then once I, I started coaching professional players, uh, Andre Agassi being one and some other famous people, Olympic athletes, uh, like you said, basketball players, football players, you name it. I did that for about 10 years, um, and we had a lot of success. And, and then, as you mentioned in the intro, in 1997, I started going into companies and teaching them the same techniques and how they could increase sales across the board in Fortune 500 uh, teams and uh, sales teams. And that's what I've been doing ever since.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. So you started studying mental toughness when you were a tennis pro. How did you decide that that was really the key to your success?
2: Because on one day, I'd beat one of the best players in the world. And the next day, I'd let down mentally somehow. And I would lose to some guy from Zimbabwe or something I never heard of, you know. And, And it was just really frustrating. And and i was mentally tough i was focused i mean i knew people who were not mentally tough but i wasn't one of those people i was mentally tough but i wasn't consistently mentally tough and to be a pro athlete you have to be consistently mentally tough physically tough and every other kind of tough to be at that level and i just couldn't maintain it and it drove me nuts it was just it was just you know infuriating because i felt like i had most of the other tools um not to be a top 10 player in the world not necessarily but certainly higher than I got in the top 500. And so I really just became obsessed with the concept and started studying it and uh, finally figured out some of the things that these these top guys do that I wasn't doing and uh, and then started coaching and doing that ever since.
1: Wow. And so you look at differences between the elite players and those who aren't. And I love tennis myself. I mean, Andre Agassi was one of my favorites. I will say Pete Sampras is probably my all time favorite male tennis player. He he had it going on mentally, didn't he?
2: Oh, yeah. Pete was a phenomenal, phenomenal player. I never coached him, but I coached a guy that that played him one time. And uh, (laughs) besides Andre, of course. But yeah, yeah, he was uh, he was he's amazing. Really, really great player. and Great mentally as well.
1: Yeah. And so you don't have to have all of the physical gifts as long as you have the mental side of it down. Does that sound right?
2: Well, you really, to be, a, you know, it depends on what you want to do. I mean, if you want to be one of the best players in the world, you have to have the whole package. I mean, sure. you have to have the whole package when you're about 22, 23 years old and you're a physical specimen. You have to have the desire to be great. It's all got to come together all at the same time. And uh, that's why those people are, are kind of freaks of nature. They don't, uh, they don't come around very often. There's not too many of them like that, but they are very special
1: absolutely let's talk about critical thinking training uh, because the ability to solve problems is certainly one of the hallmarks of a world-class performer how how do you help people learn how to think critically
2: well tennis was is a game of critical thinking anyone that plays at a high level knows that and so I was trained in critical thinking believe it or not since I was six years old because mm. tennis is a game of numbers and and it really is percentages it's it's in a sense it's almost math uh, example would be you know, if you if you can hit three balls over the net in a row consistently, you can beat ninety nine percent of the people that play tennis. If you can hit seven in a row consistently, you're one of the best tennis players in the world. And so it, it really comes down to metrics, numbers, and percentages. And um, and chess is a similar game. I played competitive chess as well as a child, and for that same reason, for critical thinking training. And uh, so that so we we take those concepts. Which basically, in a nutshell, Brian, what it really breaks down to. I mean, critical thinking is a big topic, but if you really want to break it down, what we do with companies is we teach them emotionless thinking, um, to to think without emotion, to strategize without emotion, to look at to look at logical thinking, not magical thinking. Mm. And uh, and there there's a lot of magical thinking going on in corporate America right now. <laughs> so yeah. so we're busy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it's difficult to separate the emotional side from the logical side, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Especially if you've never had training in it, because what what people do is they call it emotional blending. We, we sort of blend our, our emotion and our logic together. And we get this kind of psychological stew that doesn't do us much good. It's almost like making decisions in your life and being drunk at the same time. You're not drunk with alcohol, you're drunk with emotion, but it's the same exact effect. You get dumber, the more emotion we feel, the dumber we get. And so we try to remove emotion as much from the equation as possible to create more strategic, uh, success.
1: Yeah, I've worked with companies that had a very family oriented feel. And so you get to know people and you get to like them a lot. I would imagine the challenges of separating logic and emotion are even more exponentially magnified when you have a family oriented dynamic in a company that you're working with.
2: Well, it's, it certainly can be. I mean, that's a good point. Um, and, and we, you know, we work with really large companies, so we don't, we don't really have the family effect. But you're absolutely right. What we really do to make it easier is we just help them to use logical thinking for strategy. Critical, you know, you could, let's just call it logic and emotion, the two, the two you know, sides of the spectrum. So we say during strategy, you know, during planning, with finances, <laughs> reading spreadsheets, making decisions for the company's future, you know, um, that's all got to be logic-based. Now, relationships with your with employees, relationships with colleagues, customers, et cetera, motivation, for example, as you mentioned in the intro to the show, uh, looking forward to to having something to look forward to as an emotional concept, which works extremely well, as you said. So all we do is say, use emotion for these things and use logic for these others and do not mix the two. They don't mix well at all. They do very well on their own, but they don't mix well
1: no I can certainly imagine not so let's talk a little bit about your book 177 mental toughness secrets of the world class how did you decide to write that book I mean you were studying this subject how did it become logical for you to put it all down on paper
2: well I just I had the privilege of working with you know world-class coaches as, as a child I, w- I was basically a I guess for lack of a better way to say it, sort of a child prodigy uh, in, in some ways. Um, not the greatest one in the world, but certainly a successful one at some level. And so I, I had all these world-class coaches, you know, so I had all that benefit. And then I competed against some of the best athletes, at least in tennis, um, you know, in the world growing up. And that was my whole life. I never knew a life outside of that as a kid, uh, really. So you 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 kind of live in this little bubble of all these super high performers. Some of them, I was better than them and and some were better than me. But The ones that were better were the best in the world and the best in the country. So, you know, I got a bird's eye view, a very close up view of of how they I I interacted with them. Those were my friends. Those are the people I hung around with. And I realized as I started to get a little bit older, you know, I mean, like in my early 20s that. Not everyone grew up like this, and I really – I know it sounds stupid to say it that way, but when you live in a bubble, you think everyone lives in the bubble, and you don't really know that uh, that this is this is a tiny subset of the world. And, uh, and it, so I had all this education basically, and in the meantime, when I got in college, I, I began interviewing self-made millionaires because I hung I, – I grew up with all these rich kids. I was not a rich kid, but yeah. I grew up with rich kids. And, uh, and I saw the way they lived and I thought someday I want to be rich like them. And so I, just as a, in 1984, my, my sophomore year in college, I, uh, I began interviewing self-made millionaires and I've been doing it for 33 years now. So between the, the, the mindset of the great athletes I, I worked with and competed against and coached later on and the rich, the self-made rich people that I interviewed for so many years, um, I decided it was time to put it in a book. And, uh, and so I just finished my 10th book. Actually, it comes out tomorrow.
1: <laughs> oh, good for you. What's it called?
2: It's called secrets. Self-made millionaires teach their children.
1: Oh, that's a great book. That's a great title. I love that already. Yeah, We've got about be, a, yeah, I was going to say, well, where, where can we get that now that I'm thinking about it?
2: It's not, it's going to be, we're, we're doing a pre-sale to our, to our, to our fan base, but um, this month, but it'll be on an Amazon in January.
1: Oh, wonderful. We've got about uh, a minute, less than a minute to our break. Uh, Let me just ask real quickly, out of all the people that you've interviewed, and this might be a difficult thing to answer, but who who impressed you the most? Who left a lasting impression on you?
2: Oh, my gosh. That's a really tough question.
1: I'm sure it is.
2: The most impressive person was probably a gentleman named Bill Gove, who was the father of the professional speaking industry. He was probably the most impressive of all of them.
1: Wow. That's great. We're coming up against our first break. My very special guest this week is Steve Siebel. He is the author of 10 books. Uh, That would be uh, as of tomorrow because he's got a brand new book coming out. And we will talk more about mental toughness as we progress through the show. And please stay with us. This is Success Profiles Radio. Please stay with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Up until now, the solution to combat the effects of stress have been delivered through pharmaceutical companies. But now there's a natural way to solve this problem without the harmful side effects. The Healthy Primate Stress Support Supplement contains natural ingredients proven to reduce cortisol, also known as the stress hormone, which causes damage to our body. And unlike prescriptions, your satisfaction is guaranteed with a 100% money-back offer on all orders. In addition, a portion of all proceeds goes to PTSD research, and as a bonus, all purchases will include a free copy of the new ebook, The Survival Guide to Living with Stress. So get the Healthy Primate Stress Support Supplement today at www.screwstress.com. Click the Amazon logo. It'll take you where you need to go. Once again, that is www. If you want to know more about how to write a nonfiction book, whether it's business, self-help, or how to, reach out to me at ww.briankwright.com for more information. Once
0: again, that's BrianKWright.com. Welcome back to Success Profiles Radio. So many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have. And this show will clearly demonstrate the principles. If I can do it, you can do it. So let's get back to the show. This is Success Profiles Radio. And here again is your host, Brian K. Wright.
1: And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Steve Siebold. And if you have an opportunity to look at Success Profiles Radio on iTunes, I would love it if you would download and subscribe to the show, even leave a review. It would mean a lot. And you can also go to successprofilesmagazine.com, get on the notification list so that you can be apprised of when the first issue comes out and it'll be very, very soon. So Steve, let's talk about uh, some of the work that you've done. You are a mental toughness expert. My favorite book of yours is 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class. And I bought this on Amazon. So that's where you can get it. Uh, Let's talk about foundationally how important it is to be mentally tough and what a big difference it can make in your life.
2: Oh, it's huge. I mean, I I mean, I think it's the ultimate, you know, personal development skill that's overlooked. I mean, especially now as the world gets crazier and crazier, we've, you know, we've entered in the world of, uh, you know, crazy politics and crazy business cycles and disruption and, you know, artificial intelligence, man, you know, I think this is, this is the the, the world that, you know, that we grew up in is gone. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's going to get, and it's going to get crazier. And and I, I think anyone that really studies, economic patterns, trends, anything like that, you can see that, you know, besides the social issues, things are going to get tougher. People are going to have to be more mentally tough. And I think that it's going to be the ultimate personal development skill, If it's not already. I think it's, it's something that's, that's overlooked by companies a lot of times and, um, by people and, um, it's not, you're it, it, going into the future. You're going to have to be more mentally tough than ever to really succeed at the level
1: you want to. Absolutely. And I, I think of all these people who have a sense of entitlement and people who don't want to compete and participation trophies and that whole noise. The world's going to be a really nasty place for people like that.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, that, that that's the thing. I think there's so there's, you know, so many very nice, sweet people, loving people, the whole thing that, that, um, you know, that we hear from all the time and we say, you know, that's, that's a wonderful one. Those are wonderful characteristics, but you know, the, the world's a pretty tough place. It's going to get tougher. You're going to have to really toughen up and magical thinking isn't going to do it anymore. You're going to have to go out and really get tough and, and, and work for what you want at a higher level than you ever have to make it before.
1: Absolutely. And I think, Part of the foundation of that mentality is that people don't want feedback. They just want to have A's. They want the ribbons. They want the trophies, whether they deserve it or not. But how do champions view feedback?
2: Oh, I mean, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate for the champion. That was one of the things that threw me off, you know, when I started working with with non-professional and, and non-Olympic athletes was, you know, I'd be working with a professional athlete, whoever it was, whatever sport, and I, you know, and I, we would have a contract, you know, coach contract, coach player contract. And when they didn't, you know, when, when it wasn't fulfilled, which usually meant that they were over practicing and were not resting enough, believe it or not. It wasn't that they were underworking that, the only, you know, we I had a few people like that. I won't mention famous people, but and non-famous people as well. But, you know, but you could you'd go to them and say, you know, look, Bob, you know, you're in violation of the contract. You know, you, you either do this or fire me. But it's gonna you. It's 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 a zero sum equation. What do you want to do? You want to make this happen, or you want to play games? Make a decision. And they'd say, "Oh yeah, no, it's my mistake. You know, I'll go back to work, coach. Sorry." And they go back to work, and you, you would, that wouldn't happen again for two years. I mean, and it and it's all of a sudden. And you, you, you when I moved away from the, the that mentality, I started doing that with salespeople at giant corporations twenty years ago, and they looked like they, they the blood drained out of their face. They were terrified of me, you know. And I said, "This is real coaching. This this coaching." that people call coaching now, this personal development coaching. To me, it's not coaching. It's some kind of facilitation, which probably has value, but it's not coaching, not real coaching. But you got to be tough to be coached. And to your point, feedback is the ultimate thing you want from the coach. The problem is most people can't handle the feedback, as you mentioned.
1: Exactly, because sometimes the coach is going to say something that you don't want to hear. I prefer that you coddle me a little bit, but I don't need the negative feedback. Well, that doesn't work. If you want to be coached and you want to be good... And you're committed to excellence. You have to be willing to hear uncomfortable things.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about athletes. They just professional athletes and Olympic athletes who you know, you know, spend so much time of in my life with. They just want to win. They don't care what they have to do. Just tell them what to do, and they go do it. And I mean, it sounds like a almost like a perfect world. And and in most cases, it really is. You once in a while, you get someone that. Is not quite that way, but not usually at that. But the time they're at a world class level, they've been coached their whole lives since they were children, and they're very good at taking feedback and they look for the feedback. They just want to win. And I don't think most people want to win is that badly. And I think that's where the, the breakdown occurs.
1: Absolutely. Champions view rejection a lot differently than everyone else does, too, don't they?
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, they, they see rejection as part of the process. I mean, I, I give it a crazy example. Wall Street Journal called me when Trump was running for president, you know, whenever, you know, maybe in the first year he, he declared whatever that was a couple, you know, a year and a half ago, whatever it was. And well, so I do a lot of interviews with the journal. And so one of the reporters calls me up and he says, he said, I'm doing this story on Trump. And he and he you know, he, he, he just said to to one of our reporters that he's never failed in business. And we know damn well that he's got nine bankruptcies he was a client of yours. You know, this guy, you've been to his house. You, you know, we know, I know, you know him and everything and you've worked with him for years and years. So as a vendor, so what's the deal? And I said, you know what? It's funny you said that because it's not just Trump. It's, it's, it's all these top successful people like Trump, not like or hate Trump. This is that, that's kind of neither here nor there in this scenario. This is just about the mentality these guys have, you know, all politics aside and all the other nonsense. Um, they don't see it as failures. I know Trump doesn't see it as a failure. He saw it as a stepping stone. He, he yeah, he went broke. I mean, he had problems and all that, like all these guys do at some point, uh, the big achievers. But he didn't he doesn't really see it as a failure. He sees it as a stepping stone. He had a he had a down cycle and he built it back up. And now he's a billionaire again. And he doesn't see that as a failure. He's not lying. He just doesn't he may lie about other things, but he's not lying about that. He just doesn't see it that way. And the guy at the journal was kind of surprised because I'm surprised you said that. I said they all think like that. The ones I've talked to anyway, all the rich, you know, self-made rich I've interviewed.
1: Yeah, it's it's a learning opportunity. You either you either win or you learn. You don't fail.
2: Yeah, there is really no fail. I mean, fail fail is something that the average person thinks of and says, well, geez, I tuck my tail tail between my legs, I'll go home because, you know, because I lost money or my business went under, I filed bankruptcy or I got divorced or, you know, whatever the failure, what they think is the failure. And the rest of the people are going, hey, bump in the road, too bad, let's let's learn from it, move on and do something even bigger. And And then they do.
1: Absolutely. mentally tough people also are not addicted to approval from others. I think a lot of people in life generally want to be liked and high achievers don't necessarily mean they they prefer to be liked, but they don't require to be liked.
2: Oh yeah, this is a big one. I mean, the last year and a half, I've been in about 65 cities doing approval addiction seminars for companies, uh, mostly in financial services and pharmaceutical companies, salespeople, of course. And, um, and the the average person on a on the psychological scale of one to seven, seven being most addicted to approval, the average person scores a seven out of a seven uh, for lots of reasons that takes too long to go into here. But um, but yeah, I did full se- full day seminars on them for, for the last year and a half. Matter of fact, I just did the last one a few weeks ago, and then I'm done, Now I'm done with those for several years. I won't do them again. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a the approval addiction thing holds a lot of people back.
1: Wow, that's crazy. Uh, you also have talked about. Or have done a book about how rich people think about money. Rich people think differently about money. And let's talk about a few of those things. Rich people use leverage, which is a foreign concept to people who maybe don't have money.
2: Absolutely. It's one of that, that leverages the self-made rich. In my experience, at least, in my 33 years of interviews, it's about roughly a little over 1,200 interviews with the self-made rich. Um, that's their favorite word, leverage. And not in the context of debt, but leverage in the in the context of they're using everything to build a bigger lever, their credibility, their education, their context, their money, other people's money, you know, all kinds of everything. They love that word leverage. That's probably the, the number one word they cite in, in the 33 going on 34 years now, um, of interviews, uh, with these people that, I mean, that's just one of the biggest ones. I mean, and and I I think it's one of the most underused things, um, out there for success.
1: Absolutely. Something else that you talk about is the fact that money is simple and not complex. Do you find that people tend to over compl- make things overly complicated?
2: Oh, sure. It's sold to us by marketers that market financial instruments. You know, I mean, I mean obviously, you know, if you're talking about financial instruments like derivatives, yeah, I mean, I, I worked for a company that did derivatives one time, and I talked to the president of the company before I went to do the speech. Then I said, I, you know, I, I've studied derivatives, I've studied economics. I just don't understand exactly how your instruments work. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm too thick to get it. I said, I just don't, I can't figure it out. He goes, I'm the president of the company, and I don't even understand it. Sure. <laughs> you know? You told me you understood it. I know you I I know you were lying and you wouldn't be speaking to our company.
1: Right. (laughs) Right.
2: Obviously, that stuff is complex. I mean, you know, uh, high speed trading, stuff like that. But but what I meant in the book, the, the Hubbard's People Think book in terms of simplicity is for the average person building. You know uh, their net worth. It, it really doesn't have to be complex. I mean, you know, in terms of money, you, you want you want to make money solve a problem. You want to make a lot of money solve a bigger problem. The, the bigger problem you solve, the more money you make. There's capitalism, in, you know, ten seconds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And people make money by solving problems for other people. Tell us about that.
2: That's it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I put that in the book. It's funny you said that. I was out speaking in San Diego, and the book came out. That book came out about seven eight years ago. And I, I don't know if you know Brian Tracy, the speaker. not sure. Yes. Yeah, so, so Brian's been a friend for 20 years. And so anyway, I was near Brian's office. He wasn't there. And so I dropped the book off. And he called me from Hawaii. It was near Christmas, uh, 2010 or whatever it was. And Brian called me up and said, I'm on the beach reading this book, this How Rich People Think book you dropped to my office. He said, and I, I never thought about the idea that you know the bigger problem you solve, the richer you get. And I said, Brian, I probably stole it from you. You've written 55 books or whatever. <laughs> so we were right. Like, but I mean that but you know it's it we, we had a serious conversation afterwards about it. And we talked about it a few times and and that, you know, it's a simple concept, but sometimes people just don't think of it like that. I probably got it from someone else, I'm sure I wasn't smart enough to think of it, but probably one of these rich people I've interviewed. But you know, the idea that to say, Hey, I want to make more money, great, solve a bigger problem or solve a problem for more people and you'll make more money. I mean, it's capitalism at its finest, you know.
1: Absolutely, we've got less than two minutes to our next break. Uh, rich people are also very willing to be uncomfortable, which is something that the masses don't enjoy.
2: Yeah, they live in a state of 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 discomfort. I mean, it's psychological. Let's say psychological, emotional discomfort. And I think the lesson there. You know, at least that I take away is, you know, I, it's, it's about becoming more willing to be uncomfortable, to be, to, as you mentioned earlier, Brian, to get feedback and, and to, take, to take things that, you know, that to take things personally, you know, when you're coached and mentored and things like that and be uncomfortable in order to get what
1: you want. Absolutely. We are coming up against our next break. My very special guest this week is Steve Siebold. He's written a bunch of books. My personal favorite is 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class. And you can find Steve on on Amazon. His last name is spelled S-I-E-B-O-L-D. And what website can we direct people to while I'm thinking about it, Steve?
2: One of the free resources we have is mentaltoughnessblog.com. And that's a resource people can tie into
1: I watched several of those videos yesterday when I was preparing for the show. Really, really great stuff. Absolutely. blog.com. Is that right? That's it. Yeah. Fantastic. We will come back after the break. My guest is Steve Siebold and we will talk more about mental toughness and how important it is and how we can enact some of these principles in our lives. And Steve has a mental toughness formula and we'll talk about that. And we will talk about so much more that may fly in the face of conventional wisdom. And again, that's why people succeed and why average people aren't as successful. So we'll come right back after the break and talk about all of this and so much more. Please stay with us. Be right back. And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest is Steve Siebel. And again, if you want to download and subscribe to Success Profiles Radio on iTunes, you can do that anytime you like. And a review would be terrific. Also, you can go to successprofilesmagazine.com, get on the notification list, and you will be among the first to know. When that magazine comes out, and the first issue is with Kevin Harrington, really amazing. Before the break, we were talking about how rich people think about money a lot differently than other people. There's three more, three or four more things that I want to explore on that topic before we move on. Rich people have a very healthy relationship with money. It's positive, it's not negative. A lot of people tend to have a very negative and disempowering view of money. So, how how exactly do people think of money differently in terms of having a positive relationship?
2: Well, I think it's it's the polar opposite of, you know, I mean, I don't know how you grew up, but the way I grew up was, uh, you know, my town, kind of a middle class town outside of Chicago and uh, super nice people and everything, you know, and all that. But, you know, it was kind of a money is a necessary evil, you know, uh, you have to have it, but it's not going to make you happy. And it's and the people that have a lot of money well, they've gotten in some ill gotten way and they're probably crooks. No one's worth that kind of money. They got You know, that kind of thing. And I think that's you know that's probably 99% of Americans that grew up like that. And then, but the rich think of it differently. I think that you know from the 33 years of interviews, uh, they see it as opportunity. They see it as abundant. It's everywhere. All they have to do is uh, be thinking if they want to make more money, thinking how to solve people's problems. And uh, so they, they, it's very, it's a very healthy thing. They don't see it as a necessary evil. They they see it as something that's uh, very positive in the world.
1: Absolutely. Uh, rich people also think of making money in a team effort. You can't do it all by yourself. They, they like to collaborate.
2: Well, yeah, they, I think they see the big picture, you know, so much that they think, you know, they, they, the, 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 the best ones I've interviewed don't care so much about the credit. They just really want to win the game at the end. And they know to do big things. You can't. It's pretty tough to do it on your own. I mean, there are exceptions, but of course, but usually it takes a team. So they're willing to share credit and the money with the team.
1: Absolutely. Abundance versus scarcity. Rich people tend to think that money is all around and they know that money is all around, whereas people operating in scarcity thinks that there is a finite pie. And if I have mine, you can't have yours and vice versa.
2: Well, I think, you know, when you look at it in a capitalistic sense, in a capitalist economy like, you know, like America, free market, where if, if, if the idea is is that there's no limit to the problems you can solve. Well, yes. then, effectively, money cannot be, <laughs> by definition, finite, because if there's, no, if there's no end to the problems you can solve, then money, in some sense, is endless. There's an endless supply of it. Um, even though there might be a finite mo- amount of money printed, there's, there's, not, there's, there's really an endless supply of it that you can collect based on the idea that there's an endless supply of ideas to solve problems. Absolutely.
1: And I love that. And I went to a T. Harg Ecker event and he talked about the circulation, the velocity of money. And he got a bunch of people on stage and he gave one person $5 and said, sell this pen to the person next to you for $5. Then he told that person to sell whatever you have for $5. That same $5 is providing value to eight different people on stage. Same way with money in the world now. Correct?
2: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're just not trained to think like, you know, like that. And, uh, and when we do start thinking like that, you see, you start, you, you start making more money and you, you see that you start to see the world through the eyes of the self made rich. And it's a very different world.
1: Absolutely. Why do you think people demonize those who have money other than the fact that the people doing the demonization don't have it?
2: You know, I think over all the years and, and especially cause I do so many interviews on the how rich people think book, it's my most, I'm interviewed up about that more than hundreds of times a year. Yeah. Um, and, and so I get a lot of hate mail about it. You know, people say, oh, rich people are terrible and all. I don't think so much. Cause I think when, when other people said to me, well, I think they're just jealous. Well, okay, there's probably some jealousy, but I think the bigger reason is, and I could be wrong just is that after so many years of doing it is that they're, they're programmed from childhood, they're brainwashed from childhood to believe. That rich people are, you know, are are crooks and they're getting it some gotten away and the whole thing. And obviously there are rich people that are crooks, but there are also poor people that are crooks and middle class people, economically speaking, socioeconomically speaking, that are crooks. So I mean, it's there. There's not there's not an over percentage of rich people who are crooks. Uh, there's no more of them than there are the poor people that are crooks. But but I think they're programmed to believe that. Um, and I think that just that that starts in childhood and by the time they're eighteen years old, they're so brainwashed they don't know the difference between right and wrong.
1: Absolutely. How important has it been for you in your journey to have mentors?
2: Oh. <laughs> Without my mentors, you know, I'd still be teaching tennis lessons at $30 an hour instead of living in a in a mansion in, outside of Atlanta. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, I think for, unless you're, you know, I don't know, this is just my opinion, but unless you're an Elon Musk or you're a, you know, a Steve Jobs or a, you know, a someone like that or a, a Zuckerberg or someone like that, I think right. you you know, I realized a long time ago, I was not I was not bright enough, born bright enough to figure this out on my own. So I was going to need some help, you know. Right. And then I started interviewing all these rich people like you interview all these successful people. And, and and I, you know, I saw that all I had to do was follow the yellow brick road. I didn't have to be as smart as them. I just had to follow them. And I just had some, you know, I was just very fortunate. I had people like Bill Gove, Bob Proctor, Larry Wilson. Those are my three major mentors in my career. And they were just I just did exactly what they told me to do. Yeah. And, um, and so whatever success I've had has been the result of mentors, no question.
1: Fantastic. So you have a mental toughness formula that you've discussed. Tell us about that.
2: Well, the, you know, we get questions so much in companies and with people that so, so many over the years people would say, well, you know, put it together. And, and so this was just a, you know, a kind of a something that other people have said in different ways. But the idea of the formula is to say, look, you know, if you've got success without fulfillment, well, then, you know, it's like being rich without fulfillment. You're you're, you're you know, it's uh, it's kind of hollow. You know, money, money. I don't. I think once you have money, you realize that the best day that you, you, I, I, you know, the best day is the day before you pick the Ferrari up, as they say. You're not not so much once you have it. Um, so it's kind of hollow without success, without fulfillment. And then fulfillment without success is frustrating. You know, because you can't do anything without money. It may not make you happy. I get that, but um, I'll tell you, life's a lot easier when you can write a check and solve ninety five percent of the problems you have. And I think people that don't believe that's true, that you can't solve most problems with a check have never had money. Um, And, you know, it's true. It really, you can buy your life back with money. It may not make you happy, but it's a hell of a lot easier to live with money than it is without it. So the point of the, the formula is to say, you know, go for fulfillment, but also go for success. Don't focus over focus on one or the other, because if you have both, You've got the, the lottery ticket. You have won the game. And a lot of people, I know a lot of people on Wall Street, uh, lots and lots of people on Wall Street, thousands of them. And a lot of them are very rich, but they're not very fulfilled. And then I know people, I have friends and other people I've interviewed over the years that are very, very fulfilled people, but they're broke and they struggle with money. And uh, it's frustrating. It's stressful. And so the combination, the formula is the combination, really, of, the, of success and fulfillment.
1: Fantastic. So mentally tough people don't require instant results, which flies in the face of what society seems to want now, that instant gratification. I want it now, now, now. doesn't work like that.
2: You know, too bad it doesn't, right? We all want it now. I mean, I want it now, sure. too. I, I love to have it. You know, it just doesn't seem to work like that. You know when you're you're going after the big goal. I mean, too bad it doesn't. Maybe it's not too bad. I mean, so I mean, you think of some of the things you got really easy in your life, and you think maybe you don't have as much respect for. Them. I mean, it took me 14 years to, to or 13 years to 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 make my first million, and that's very very slow for someone who's an entrepreneur. Obviously, so I was no you know rocket scientist in doing it. But you know what? I really, I, I in some ways, I don't. Now that I'm older, I don't, I don't really regret it anymore. I used to. Uh, some of my friends blew me away and made it in their, in their twenties, you know, and I was broke all through my twenties and, and most of my thirties. But, um, but you know, now I, I appreciate it more because I lived half of my adult life with, with very little money living and having an average income. And then when I was able to, to, you know, to, to do well financially, then it really meant something to me. And it means something to me even now after all these years. And so maybe, maybe the, the instant gratification wouldn't be a good thing, even if we had it.
1: Yeah. You have another book that applies mental toughness principles to health. What is the relationship between mental toughness and health?
2: Oh, boy, you're going to get me in trouble now. Okay, (laughs) Well, I've had people come to me over the years and say, all right, you know, you guys have had success, you know, with big companies and all these things, athletes and all that. So why don't you try to do something for the obesity epidemic? So long story short, in 2009, I wrote a book called Die Fat or Get Tough. Uh, 101 differences in thinking between fat people and fit people. And what I did, Brian, was I went out and I it took me two years to do the research. And I went out and I and I had breakfasts, lunches, dinners, uh, you know, meals with people who were really overweight and people who were really fit. And I realized that they because it was it was meals specifically because I saw the way they ordered food. I saw the way they thought and had an interview with each one of them. And I realized actually that even though I wasn't fat, I I thought more like I ate more like a fat person and thought more like a fat person. So I put this book out based on the two years of research. I got lucky. Kathy Lee Gifford from the Today Show has been a fan for a while. She picked up the book. She loved it. She put me on the Today Show in front of three million people. And I had three people threaten to kill me the first day the book came out. What? Threatened to kill me because I said, Kathy Lee said it's on the internet, but Kathy Lee said, what's the premise of the book? And I said, if you're fat, it's your fault. Grow up emotionally, get mentally tough and fix it. And three people threatened to kill me after the show on uh, email, email. Wow.
1: I actually did watch that video online. That was, that was a pretty good interview and, and hard hitting too. I mean, you told it like it is. So what are some of the fundamental ways that thin people and, and bigger people tend to think?
2: Well, you know, it's kind of, it's funny cause it's kind of like money that the, the fit people really think about, about food in the same way that that rich people think about money, you know, the self-made rich think about money. And that's that, they, they, they have a very healthy relationship with it I mean I' eating. I'm looking for the, the thing that tastes the best on the menu and and the guy the, the fit guy that I'm that I'm with Scott Lopez would be a good example he was not one of the people that I interviewed because I didn't know Scott back then but he would be a good example because he's a jiu-jitsu champion and a physical specimen and all the rest right yeah. but I you know I, 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 they, they have a very healthy relationship they're eating for energy they're eating for health well I was eating the pizza and the donuts and all the crap. And uh, and so they look at it in a very different way. It's like the world looks very different to them um, than it does to the people struggling with weight the same way, in my opinion, the same way the rich money looks to the rich compared to the way money looks to the struggling financially.
1: Yeah, it's the difference between eating food for pleasure and eating food for nutrition and fuel.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk about the do or die mentality. Uh, There are people who think about what is this going to cost me and other people think about what is this worth to me. Talk about that negotiating the price for success.
2: I, I think there's a real secret to that. I mean, you know, secret's kind of an overused word, but I think there, there really is a secret to that that the super successful have. And I think that, and it's been said, obviously, you know, lots of times before, but I think you really got to decide what you really want. And that was my hardest thing, you know, because I always wanted to be a professional tennis player. And that's all I thought about as a child, all the way till I was 24 years old. And I decided I played Andre Agassi is what happened. And he was ahead of me. I was ranked a little bit ahead of him at the time, the only time <laughs> ever. And uh, and he just blew me off the court. And I thought I'll never I could never be at that level. His, his, his talent is just is so far ahead of me. So I you know, so I, I, I didn't know what to do. I retired and I didn't know what to do. And I had to find something I love to do that that much. And once you find it, then making that do or die commitment is not that difficult. But until you find it, I think that's a tough thing to do.
1: Absolutely. We are coming up against our final break and I cannot believe how quickly this show is going. This has been so much fun. This has been packed with so much information and so much value. Uh, My guest is Steve Siebold. He's written a lot of books. And my favorite, once again, is 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class. Go on Amazon. Look for Steve and and get at least one of his books today. You will be very, very glad you did. And we will come back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. We will come back. And down the stretch we come. When we come back from our break, I'm going to ask... Steve, about uh, some more ideas and ways that mentally tough people are different from everybody else. You don't want to miss this. Please stay with us.
0: The Toginet Radio Network broadcasting quality programming to the world.
3: It's never hurt. Can you keep a secret? Apparently, most women can't. According to a London study, on average, a woman can only keep a secret for about 32 minutes. One in ten women quiz said they'd had a falling out with a friend over letting secrets slip. Plastic surgery, people involved in dalliances, canoodling, and relationship problems topped the list shared in hugger-mugger. Do the Britons gossip more than Americans? Probably not, but they certainly read more tabloids. What's a word for the enjoyment of reading about another's troubles? Schadenfreude. A quidnunc is another word for gossip. And Alice Roosevelt Longworth said it best at a dinner party. If you can't say something good about someone, sit right here by me. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Word.
0: Welcome back to Success Profiles Radio. So many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have. And this show will clearly demonstrate the principles, if I can do it, you can do it. So let's get back to the show. This is Success Profiles Radio, and here again is your host, Brian K. Wright.
1: And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Steve Siebold. and we are coming down the final stretch. Let me ask you uh, about Mental Toughness University. This is uh, one of your, your big programs. I'd love to hear about this.
2: Yeah, Mental Toughness University, basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, our, our flagship program we've done all over corporate America for 20 years, and uh, it's a spinoff of what I used to do with professional sports teams. The U.S. Navy SEALs have been through it for the last 15 years. Uh, lots of our clients have been through it, and basically, it, it gives you the, 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 the foundational tools of mental toughness to be able to use in your life to, to succeed, and honestly, Brian, it's for people who really are, are want to be high achievers. Those are the people that really lock onto it more than anyone else.
1: Fantastic. I love that. And where can we learn more about that?
2: Uh, you can learn more about it on uh, on the Mental Toughest blog is one place. Uh, and we, we do what we hold. We hold. We don't hold that many public seminars. We do mostly corporate. But our office is at a place outside of Atlanta called Bona Allen Mansion. It's a six acre uh, historic mansion. Uh, and we hold our seminars um, here at the public seminars here at the mansion. Most of them.
1: Fantastic. I love that. So. Rich and successful people see everything as a game. Tell us about that.
2: well, they you know it's it's kind of like playing a, a, a professional athlete at at the highest level. like one time I played bjorn Borg when Borg had won his fifth Wimbledon wow. and afterwards, yeah, a long time ago. and i was I was so nervous. I was squeezing that racket, as we say in tennis so hard, and he was just as loose as he could be. and because he was loose, I mean obviously he was a much better player anyway. but it, it, it was, you know, he was playing a game and he was acting like he was playing a game. And I think people that are very successful learn to see things as that, that like business, for example, entrepreneurship, you know, um, careers as a game. So they're not so, they, they learn to do that. So they're not so tense. They're not so over-focused and, and they're not squeezing too hard and putting too much pressure and stress on themselves. It, it's really a psychological technique.
1: I love that. That's fantastic. So how do champions view adversity differently than everyone else?
2: Oh, they see it as, as the ultimate catalyst for growth. I mean, no one likes the adversity. I mean, I don't like it any more than anyone else does. You know, like it, no one does, obviously. But but it is, but you have to recognize. I think anyone that's achieved anything, you know, realizes that you know you really you, when you when you lose, um, that's when you learn. I mean, when you win, you you know you, you just say, well, geez, is isn't that great. And you you pour a drink and celebrate. But when yeah. you lose, that's when you really sit down and really analyze. What the heck did I do wrong? How did I miss this one? You know, and you—and that's when you really grow. So it's, it's, as much as we don't like adversity, it's obviously the catalyst for great success.
1: Absolutely. So how about having an unbreakable belief in yourself and not selling yourself short? That's something that a lot of people struggle with.
2: Yeah, I think it. I think that it comes down to you know if if you're not behind yourself, who's going to be? I mean, you know, the question I think becomes is, it's it's all great. You know, when you're really successful, like you know, years ago we had a company and it was pretty mid sized company. We were making lots of money and millions and millions of dollars and all that whole thing. And in one in one shot, and I won't go into the details because it doesn't matter. We lost. Um, I personally lost about ten million dollars in one shot. And it's funny how you know. All, all the people that were with you, some of the, you know, when you were doing really well, uh, suddenly leave you, you know, and, and because all of a sudden, you know, I, I was getting senators on the phone, congressmen on the phone. They were taking my calls. And all of a sudden, no one was taking my calls. And you realize, I think what I realized back then was, you know what, I've got to be strong enough. I've got to be mentally tough enough. I've got to believe in myself enough that I can do this on my own, at least pull myself up on my own out of the, out of the, you know, out of the rejection mode, out of the, you know, feeling badly about failure, you know, or myself or whatever it was, I've got to be able to do this with no support. Now, if I can get support, great. But what if no support shows up? Am I tough enough to do this on my own until I'm successful enough to build a team? And I think that's a great, that was the greatest thing that, that was worth more than $10 million to me, that one lesson. Um, I'd, I'd pay it all over again just to learn that one thing.
1: Fantastic. Great successful people also play to win and they play not to lose that seems to fly in the face of what a lot of people think about and believe about because they want to guard what they have instead of being aggressively going forward
2: absolutely and i I say this in in corporate speeches all the time brian and that people just freak out i call it i i just you know the the premise is very simple it's a mental toughness premise it's a critical thinking premise and here it is if you're going to play not to lose in other words if you're going to play it safe in your life you're not playing the percentages. And life, obviously, like everything else, is a percentage game. So you start with the end in mind. And the end in mind is you're going to die. You're not going to make it. We've seen the end of this movie, and we don't make it in the end. The people right. freak out when I say this, right? Because they go, oh, my God, you're, you know, it's morbid and everything. No, it's just objective reality. This is the way it is. We, we get a certain amount of time. We, maybe tonight's our, our last night. You know, who knows? Maybe it's 50 years from now. Who knows? But we none of us know. But we do know objectively, for sure, absolutely, we are there. The end of this movie is we die. So what why would I what percentage is there in holding back at any level and playing it safe when I already know I'm not going to make it in the end? Yeah. Well, what can you take from me that's bigger than my own life?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, too. And when you think about football at the end of the game, the team that's ahead, they're they're trying to protect the other team from not scoring. But yet you give up so many yards and you put that other team in a position where they're going to win, they're playing not to lose. And football is sports is is notorious for seeing that principle play out.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the great, great example, recent example, um, when the Atlanta Falcons lost in the Super Bowl last year to the, you know, to, uh, to new England, I got a call from some of the people in the, in the Falcons organization. They say, you know, can, what what do you think happened? I said they played not to lose. They were terrified. Tom Brady scared him, which, you know, anyone would be scared to play against Tom Brady. as great as he is. But yeah. they're 25 points up and they're playing the second half like like they're terrified. And of course, Brady ate him for lunch as a result. They did not play to win the second half. They played. That was textbook playing not to lose. And it's easy to say just say it. And I I respect those guys, Matt Ryan and all those guys are great guys and they're great performers, but they, they made a colossal error. That's easy to make, but that's what a lot of people do in their lives. Unfortunately, we've all done it. Of course I've done it as well, but um, yeah, Yeah. bad mistake for sure. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Let's talk about how world-class people talk to themselves because we all talk to ourselves. We all think thousands and thousands of thoughts a day, but world-class people talk to themselves differently than everyone else does.
2: Oh, man, they do. You know, I got a friend that wasn't a friend at the beginning, but in 1986, a guy named Dr. Shad Helmstead, wrote a book called uh, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. And I got that book the first week it was out. Then years later, it was it's an unbelievable book. It's a three hour read. If you've I don't know if you, have you ever read that book.
1: I have not.
2: Oh, you've got to read it. It's 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 one of the it's the greatest book ever written on self-talk. And I got to know she had over the years a little bit um, we're not great friends, but we we've talked on the phone several times over the years and this book is basically his research he's a psychologist. It came out in eighty six and it's still i I've read so many books on that topic because it's it's a it's a psychological topic. I need to know what 's out there, and I, so I, I keep up with all that stuff and since eighty six no one's written a book even in the same same stratosphere as as Helmstetter's book. Uh, Really, the listener, people listening to the show, do yourself a favor and read that book. It's called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself, Dr. Shad Helmstetter. I think it's a $10 book. It'll take you three hours to read it. It's genius. But it talks about the percentage of people you know, and he gives breakdowns and everything. It's really data based. It's it's not a magical thinking book. Um, it's a it's a it's a data fact based evidence based book. And he talks about the difference in super achievers that how they how they build their belief systems up. From scratch, they manufacture their own belief systems. No matter what's coming in from the outside, they're generating their own belief system from the inside. While everyone else is walking out there, you know, walking around talking to themselves in a very negative way and deprogramming themselves and with with negative, uh, you know, fear based, scarcity based, uh, you know, language.
1: Absolutely. So, do you have a specific set of affirmations that you say to yourself every day? Like examples of things that you say to yourself.
2: Well, you know, it depends on the situation. Yes, I do. But I'll give you one that's really basic that really helped me. Um, when I went through this situation where I lost the 10 million bucks, I, I, I took a pretty good hit emotionally, you know, as you do when you take a big hit. I figured I was on my way to a $100 million net worth. And I, and I would have been if things would have went well. But long story short, it didn't. And we had some issues. And um, so I was pretty down emotionally. And, I, and this is about 20 years ago. And Brian Tracy, I called Brian Tracy, I've known for a long time. And Brian said to me, I said, could you give me any advice? Because you're one of my heroes. You know that i you know, I'm just a big fan of Brian Tracy, have been for 100 years. And uh, I said, could you give me anything? And Brian says, you know what? Do you run or exercise during the day? I said, I run two miles in the morning every day. He goes, the whole two miles, every single day, I want you to say this to yourself. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Just keep repeating it. And he goes, I know it sounds. you think it sounds stupid. But you're going to feel better every time you do it. And you're going to start looking at things. It's going to program you to think I can do it. And I had studied enough psychology and worked with enough athletes to know he was right. But I was so far down emotionally. I just started doing that. And it, I know it sounds very basic and pedestrian, which it is. But that really, and I still talk to Brian about that today. And he gave me that great advice. And that really
1: helped me. That is fantastic. We are less than three minutes until the end, Steve. So here's the question that I ask everyone at the end of the show. Who inspires and motivates you?
2: I'll, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question because I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this over the years. Um, I just had lunch, um, uh, or dinner, I'm sorry, recently with Bob Proctor. And if you guys don't know, the listeners don't know Bob Proctor, look him up, Google Bob Proctor. It's O R P R P R O C T O R. Bob just turned 83 years old. He's been a mentor, a friend for 20 years and he lives up in Toronto and, uh, we were having dinner on his 83rd birthday in Toronto a few months back. And, uh, and we were talking about. It. I said, Bob, you know, the retirement thing isn't going too well for you because he's a very, very busy. Speaker, he speaks all sure. over. The world. And uh, and I said, he said, he said, retire to what? He says, I'm going to go till they carry me out in a box. And, uh, and I said, you'll probably outlive us all, Bob. You know. And we laughed. And and I just he he he's got more. We were there for three hours having dinner in Toronto, and he had more energy. And I called my wife afterwards from the hotel, and I said, he Bob is doing so well. I call him Uncle Bob. I said, Uncle Bob is doing so well. He's an animal. I see he's got more energy than both of us put together. And he's very inspiring to me based on his age and his success and his ambition. Just an amazing guy. Everyone should be following a Bob Proctor book or tape or program. He's he's, he's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, he's got a book called You Were Born Rich. I'm working through that now, and it's really good.
2: Yeah, it's great.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Where can we find you? Where can we vibe with you and tribe with you?
2: Any of the – all my books or most of the books, my new book, like I said, is coming out tomorrow, will be The Secret Self-Made Millionaires, Teach Your Kids. For anyone with kids, go get – it won't come out till January on Amazon, but get that book. It's coming out in paperback on, on Amazon. Teach your kids. It's a book written to be read with your kids, not the kids – teenagers mostly. Um, read it with them. You'll change the way they think about – this is 33 years of interviews asking the self-made rich – What do you teach your kids that's different than the average person financially? And you won't believe some of the things. It's gonna really, it's gonna be all over the media within a couple of months. But read that book to your kids. That's my best thing. You can get it on Amazon.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Steve, for being here this week. It was an honor and a privilege to have you here, my friend.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. Great. You know, I'm a big fan of your show, and I appreciate you being. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Awesome. And thank you all for listening to my very special interview with Steve Siebel this week. This is Success Profiles Radio. Join us every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, where I interview another world-class achiever, learn how they succeeded, what they overcame, and the lessons that we can all learn and extract from that. Until next Monday, please have a great week and uh, find something to be passionate about and do something to move in the direction of your dreams this week. You will be so glad you did. Have a great week, everyone. This has been Success Profiles Radio. Take care.